Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have John Epperson. Hello, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest, and it is Klaus. I'm always worried I'm going to say names wrong. Lonspol. Yeah, sure. That works. <laughs> That's what nice people say when I slaughter their names. Uh, why don't you say it and then tell us a little bit about yourself and the Ruby community out there in Denmark. Sure. So my name is Klaus Lindspel. And yeah, I'm a, I'm a software engineer that works with a lot of networking. I actually mainly work with C++, but Ruby is my go-to pleasure, I guess. So it's, it's always a thing I dip my toes in. I haven't really been that much involved with the Ruby community in Denmark, but it's been one of the things with COVID, going to a few of uh, Copenhagen RB and mm-hmm. talks, and especially early on in my, my career when I was working with, with Ruby, it was it was one of those exciting languages coming into and seeing all these talks and feeling the community that really like pulled me into, yeah, liking Ruby and working with Ruby as a side project whenever I can. So. Yeah, I think that's the very short version. Cool. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So, yeah. So you like Ruby better than C++? Well, yeah. Yeah, I think that's for sure. At least with uh, <laughs> <laughs> at least with a lot of like, uh, when I do all my hobby projects, it's at least what makes sense. I mainly work with uh, embedded computing and embedded Linux. And Ruby is not big in the embedded Linux environment. But right. when I do other things, it's mostly Ruby. I'm not a big Rails guy either. It's mostly pure Ruby when I do things. So so that's just yeah my go-to language whenever I can. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny too, because like here in the States, I think Rails is by far kind of the big use case for Ruby. But when I talk to people in Europe, there are a lot of people that are using Ruby. I mean, they're still doing web development, but they're using like Hanami or something like that to, to write their code. And... And then, yeah, a lot of people are just doing something else, you know, not even doing web development. So they're using just straight up Ruby to do stuff. I also see a lot of just kind of Ruby utility writing going on, like in Japan, where Ruby was kind of born, Rails was kind of born here. And so they'll go to Rails when they need to write an app that merits it. But otherwise, yeah, a lot of times they'll go to Ruby just to write some script that does something. And so... I've used it a lot for support. So when I have some data I need to parse, or when I need to generate mm-hmm. specific C++ code out, out of some data I have from, from a hardware set of guys, I will usually use Ruby to format everything, like plug open IRB and then just script my way out of things because that's a lot easier of doing it manually or writing the similar thing in C++. So. Right. And we're going to talk about reactors here in a minute, but I'm always curious when I talk to somebody from a place that we haven't really explored on this show, just talk about the community where they're from for a minute. And so 
Well, what's the Ruby community like in Copenhagen? So the, there's definitely at least been uh, Ruby RB or Copenhagen RB. So there's been a lot of talks in that. And I went to them, but mostly in the time around the 2012, 2013 oh, okay. time. So it's been it's been a while since I've been active on that. But while I was studying, a ton of people I worked with who were the forward-thinking people and the people who were really good at programming besides just the telecommunication part, they were like dipping either dipping their toes in Ruby or using Ruby for everything. So so while it's the same in the university time with Java being the being the big hit, all the quote unquote cool kids were, were doing Ruby and they were doing some really, really cool projects. So so I think there's an active community about it, but it's it's not as I am not part of the active community as much right now. Just because I'm mostly doing C on my Okay. On, on, for for work purposes. Gotcha. Anything else you want to ask, John, before we dive into reactors? No, I was just going to kind of agree. I feel like we all kind of like, I do stuff in my day job, right? I don't use the same tools for my night stuff, right? And I don't, so for example, right? So I do a lot of Ruby and Rails, right? But my buddy a couple of years ago was like, you should check this letter thing all the time. You know, in fact, I even talked about it on the show because I, I got into like a React I really hated my experience and convinced me to drop this flutter thing. It's like, so I've like sort of been slash somewhat involved in the flutter experiment, right? And, you know, not totally committed, but I enjoy it, right? Yeah. So I think, I, I think that's also a part of being just, just being with, like, you, you work with a lot of different tools and a lot of different languages and you work in your spare time. And, mm-hmm. and I've like, I'm trying to also dip my toes right now in, and in Go, and I've also been looking at Flutter for front end just because it seems exciting. At some point, there's a limit to how many things, new things you want to try <laughs> out. But, but yeah, it's uh, it is definitely uh, there. There's a lot of curiosity, and I think that's the, I think that's the important part. Yeah, it's funny you guys mentioned Flutter. I'm actually coaching somebody who started a show on Flutter. So yeah, so yeah, if you want to check it out, it's flyinghighwithflutter.com. And yeah, anyway. I could definitely be <sighs> Yeah. Well, let's let's dive in and talk about Raptors. So Raptors is one of those Ruby 3 things that we kind of talked about with like 80 other things when Luke was on. But do you want to just refresh people's memory as far as what Raptors are and what they do? Sure. So so if we if we start from point number zero, it would be that Ruby doesn't really like concurrency. So we cannot really execute things at the same time with Ruby. The only way we, we could do that prior to this was with forking, so making a whole new Ruby process right. and having things run parallel and having that be controlled by the OS. And you could, to some extent, do it with threads if you had a lot of I.O. So if you were waiting for something on the network or you were writing something to disk, then in the meantime, while those writes or those network stuff were happening, yeah, the the global VM log would kind of schedule something else to happen while those writes beats whatever were happening. So that was how it used to be, and also how it is when you work with those things. Rectors introduce a new way to the the short version is that it 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 instantiates multiple global VM logs. So instead of having a situation where you only have one global VM log for your entire Ruby program, suddenly you can have separate parts of your Ruby program running under their own global VM logs. What that does is that you can actually get true concurrency where two Ruby threads, which each re- each reactor is a thread in the OS world, 
they will execute parallel in parallel. And that comes with a lot of great things because we can speed up things by doing things truly parallel, but it also comes with some limitations because what we cannot do is share some uh, certain types of memory and there are certain Ruby things we need to do in in order to work with Rectors, like freeze a lot of objects and hashes and arrays and stuff like that. So so there's good sides that makes it easy to work with Rectors and other things that makes it really hard to work with Rectors. So, so I think that's the main part. The way you can communicate between Rectors is by sending messages that can either be sending objects or it could be sending, yeah, just sending Ruby objects between these Rectors. Yeah. So are you familiar at all with sort of the architecture of Haskell? I'm sorry, what? Okay. So I was wondering, since you built WebServer, if you were familiar at all with the architecture of Haskell. I am actually not familiar with Passenger. I've used it yeah, back in the day, but yeah. I was going to ask for confirmation, but it, sound, it sounded like to me back when we did the episode on updating Ruby 3, and, and it still sounds like after your explanation, this is very much, it, it's very similar-ish uh, if you are familiar with the architecture of Passenger. Right? You basically have some amount of shared stuff between between Macros, but for the most part, they more or less have their own memory space and like you said, they have their own build between them and they have the ability to talk between them, but they're more or less separate spaces for running separate things, separate lanes. Does this sound kind of ca- cutting in and out for you too? Give me a second. I will fix all of this. Now. <laughs> Sorry, John. It, it's, it's almost like you have a gate set and it's just set a little bit too high. Oh, well, then give me a second. I can probably fix that. Is this any better? Yeah, yeah it is. Okay. Do you hear that static from earlier? Nope. All right. Well, hopefully it doesn't get too hot in here. Let's go. All right. All right. So what were you asking about passenger? Man, I'll, I'll just do that whole section again then. Yeah. Yeah. So I was asking you originally, it sounds like it, basically from your description and from what we talked about back when we did the Ruby 3.0 episode, kind of really sounds like Raptors and passenger have a lot of similarities, right? To have their own memory space, they, for the most part, they have the only memory space with some amount of shared. They have the ability to, to talk between, though I, that's not really a thing with Passenger or whatever. But for the most part, they run in their own lanes. It's not like how should I put it? it it's not like true threading where I can just like sort of like I can run in this one and then I can run in this one. And I can run in this one, right? Definitely stop me if I'm wrong here. But but at least I have parallel lanes kind of going on or whatever. And so therefore that's, you know, up to, uh, if I have four Raptors, I have four lanes, right? Like I can do four different things at the same time and totally separate guilds so that we don't have issues with one locking the other. Yeah, exactly. So even if you wanted to, you could in, inside a Raptor, you would be able to instantiate novel Ruby threads and they would act like they would with like a non-Raptor program inside there. So you can share things between those Ruby threads as you would normally, but yeah, between the Raptors, you, you run you run in, in with separate guilds, GVLs, and 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 there is no thing blocking each Raptor between each other. Awesome. Yep. Sweet. Okay. So Raptors sound pretty cool because it's legit threading for Ruby. Like that's amazing. Yeah. I love that legit threading. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, look. At the end of the day, we all know that that we have fake threading right now, so it's great to have real real ish threading. Yep. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I I got inspired to look at Rectors based on the. I, I'm probably also gonna slaughter his name, but Kier or Kerr from from Shopify, I think, 
who wrote a blog post about making a, a an HTTP server with reactors. And based on of that, I was like, hmm, let me see if I can I can also play around with this because that's TCP. What what can I do with UDP? And then I kind of dip my toes into reactors from there. So getting into that, I mean, all right. So you were just like, can I do a UDP server? And how did that go? So I was like, to begin with, I was like, hey, I want to do some stuff with DNS. Let me let me implement a DNS server for some reason. I'm, I'm doing a project with some uh, IPv6 testing, and then I needed a DNS server. And instead of making a custom other background, I was like, I'm just going to do my own DNS server. If that's a good idea or a bad idea, that's a whole other thing. But I thought it was a fun project. And and basically, I, I thought, okay, I can either do this with uh, normal threading. I do have a lot of I.O., so maybe that could be enough. But at the same time, the hardest part would not be the I.O., it would be the processing of things for my project. So, And then Rectures came out, so that seemed like an obvious idea. So so going off of, of Kier's blog post and whatever he did, I thought, okay, he has made uh, done all the groundwork. I can, I can basically start from there and then say, I can probably reuse the same things because, hey, it's TCP, it's UDP, it's almost the same. But the problem is, it's not. Uh, so, so with TCP, and what he uses is that as soon as you have someone connected to you, you get a client socket. So you have a listener socket that listens for new connections, and when people connect to that and you have an accept method, you get a new socket based off of that. So you have a new file descriptor for the socket and everything. What he does is that he then passes that socket to the rector that needs to process whatever request is coming in, and then he can answer that socket uh, on that socket in the rector. But with UDP, you don't have a client socket. What you get is that you get a client object, which is just uh, telling what IP address and what port connected to you, and then you get a message. So you get just a string of bytes. And how do you then work around with that? So I ended up yeah, writing an article about how to actually work with with UDP and rectors because it's not as it it it, it is uh, on on one hand I could pass the entire I I could pass things along the pipe that goes into the rector I could pass the socket I could pass the the message I could pass everything but but you kind of have a limit to how much you want to pass through these messages between the rectors. Just because you don't want like messages flowing around all all the place, but you can just limit it to less data. Maybe it's a few pointers you pass around instead. So it was it was basically a uh, it was basically an exercise in how can can I pass the least amount of data over these fractures. And in the end, I just ended up actually passing the message that I get from the UDP UDP accept or receive method, and then the client itself. And then I had the UDP server instantiated outside of the context of the rectors, which for some reason works. So when you make new rectors, you everything can act uh, can access the same UDP uh, server or this UDP socket and send from there. I'm actually slightly surprised about that part based on what I have understood from rectors so far, but it worked. So so yeah, yeah. I'm I'm kind of curious. Uh, you know, how does that work? Where you yeah, everything talks to the same socket and yeah so 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 at least so so i have the i create the socket outside the context of the rectors which i would have assumed would not have worked i would assume that i would have to make it and then pass it along but it turned out that if i can make it outside that context and then 
when I create my rectors, I can pass in the socket as an argument to the rector, and then I can work with it inside there. It's 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 kind of a I, I think it makes a copy of it, which is fine for the socket because it's the same file descriptor from for the OS. So I'm guessing that's what happened, but this is actually a place where I'm a bit fuzzy about how my my code actually works. Makes sense. The other thing that I'm wondering about is so it spins up a new reactor for each request that comes in? No, so I've, I've made it so it spins up a reactor based on, right now I've just set it to four because I have four okay. CPUs, but it spins up a reactor for each CPU core, which would be the thing that would make sense for most machines. Mm-hmm. So either spin up a new reactor for each CPU core or half of them or whatever you want to load your system. A pooling sort of idea. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And then you've got some really simple... Is, is there any kind of load balancing here or does it just rotate or how, how does that work? So so what happens is that I have a I have a rector and this is also stolen directly from Kier's uh, blog post, so I'm not going to take any credit for that. But what he did was that he placed a rector in the middle called a pipe. So you have one socket or one rector that receives the requests and put it into this pipe rector. And this pipe rector yields whatever it gets. And that means that my worker rectors can pull from that. So whatever worker rector is ready to do some kind of work will pull from the pipe. Whoever gets to it first will pull from it. So if there is a lot of requests waiting in the pipe, they will just take from there. And if there is nothing, it could theoretically be the same rector that just pulls a request every, I don't know, 10 seconds if that's when I get my requests. So some kind of load balancing, but not like specifically you get one, then you get one, then you get one. Yeah. So a first in, first out pipe with sort of a round robin, more or less. Yeah. Like. I, I oh, it's not purely round robin. It's just no. first unbusy. Yeah, first come, first <laughs> yeah. serve. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So it could kind of have a round robin effect if there's enough load. But also, if there's a rector that's stuck, then we'll just skip that one and then move on. Yeah, you're not evaluating any of the requests to, to check size or anything. Yeah, no. Cool. Yeah, all right. So I think we're all probably looking at the same code or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, yep. I have to remember it myself as well. So I was <laughs> it's all good. Awesome. I mean, all right. So now you've done this. How, how do you feel about Ruby threading with Rectors? Uh, so, so far, that was the easy part. And I was like, yay, I can work with Rectors now. This is great. Then what I haven't written about yet is that I'm incorporating it in this IPv6 project that I'm doing. And with that project, I'm working with Redis. And that's fun and all, but Redis per, de- per default does not work with rectors. So that's a, that's an interesting situation where we might run into different gems that is not rector compatible unless we do some stuff to them. So here you mean the Redis gem, not Redis the oh, yes, server yes, itself. Yes, the Redis gem. So so for example, rector come with with a method that's called make shareable which I think calls freeze amongst other things on the object you call make shareable. But there are some things that you would need to do to get Redis to work. So I've had to, to monkey patch a few things in the Redis gem. It has default initializer, a default config that uses the end hash. But the end hash is not possible to freeze in Ruby. I actually don't know why. But you cannot freeze the, the env hash. So, so I had to kind of monkey patch my way around that by changing the default configuration object and removing the env hash in, in the vector gem and making certain things shareable and specifically instantiating the background because if not, it would call an instance variable, which you're not allowed to do in rectors and so on and so forth. 
So, so while you can get stuff like that to work, it's definitely a bit cumbersome right here in the beginning where the Rectory API is still experimental. So a lot of people probably don't want to spend a ton of time getting their gems to work with it. But at the same time, you kind of want to test out these things and figure out, well, what, what can you actually do with Rectories? This is exactly the kind of stuff that we were talking about too. Like when we were going into Ruby 3, see, it feels a lot like a lot of the basic ground level stuff has been made for a lot of improvements. Mm -hmm. But in order for those improvements to really be seen by people who are further down the pipeline, there's a whole bunch of building that still has to go on. And and these kinds of things where you're just like, you know what, I want to do this thing. Now I got to fix a bunch of stuff in a bunch of different libraries. Like this is the kind of work that has to happen for, for that kind of stuff. Like reactors aren't suddenly going to speed us up by 3x by themselves. Yeah, I think... I, th I think it's also a, a, an argument because there are certain things that are very Ruby to do and very easy to do with Ruby that might not be compatible with Rectors, at least with how the API is right now. So it, it could become a question if, if do you really want to support Rectors with your gem? Would you need to write separate code when you're in, in Rector mode or when you're in non-Rector mode, which you can at least test for? But like then that becomes a... If, if you're writing a, a large gem and and you have some easy way to develop things, like, do you really want to go that extra mile to support vectors? It could be easy sometimes, but it could also be like very difficult for some people, I expect. That's a really good point. I remember, I remember some gems that we used to use that we stopped using for various threading-related reason, reasons over the years, you know? Or also alternate stories of gems that were like, yeah, we had to... I'm trying to remember. There was some some time-based library thing. I don't know that a bunch of gems were using. I know that Sidekick had this problem too. Oh my gosh. I can't I can't think of it off the top of my head. Yeah, I'll see if I can figure it out. But, but yeah, I mean, there have been libraries over the years, right? They weren't compatible with threads and didn't get updated. And so, or there were ones that had major migrations and people down the chain had to deal with it. Yeah, I think... I think I think it will be easier once the API becomes more stable, but I, maybe that's a kind of catch twenty two, and you need to test out the API for it to become stable. And yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting because effectively, how do I put it? So concurrency brings its own set of challenges, right? And so what we're talking about here is not that the the code wouldn't run in threads. The problem was, was that you could get into timing issues, usually like race conditions or things like that, right? Where you get into a weird state because something is clobbering something else that something in another thread is expecting not to change, right? Or it comes in at just the wrong time in the middle of a change and makes it something unexpected. And so what's, what's interesting with this is that in a lot of cases, it's powerful because you can be concurrent, but it also sets you up so you can shoot yourself in the foot. And so, yeah. And so far in Ruby, since threads weren't necessarily completely threads, you could get away with some things that I don't think you're going to be able to get away with. But in other cases, you still had that same problem with threads, even though they weren't threads, threads. So just getting down to the concurrency issues, I think... Yeah, there's going to be some implementation, but I think there's also going to be some growth of just understanding the challenges of writing code in this style for the kinds of applications that we're building. The other thing, though, to keep in mind, and I think this is interesting too, is that 
Rails has continued to grow and evolve. A lot of the other things that we've been writing over the years has continued to grow and evolve in kind of the single process world, right? Or maybe we spin things off into another process and we have job queues or or uh, what is it? Distributed Ruby, DRB, or things like that, right? Where it's like, okay, we've got this other thing over here that we can talk to and make it do stuff. And so at the end of the day, this this is going to, I think, be brought in in kind of specialized ways and then continue to infiltrate Ruby as a whole as we get to more and more places that actually need it. And I think in a lot of cases, a lot of Rubyists won't even know it's there because it's not really going to deeply impact them. But for the ones that this is going to make a difference for, it's going to make a major difference for. So, Yeah, I think, I think if, you're, if you're running Rails and maybe you, you're using Puma or something like that as your, as your application server, like you're probably not going to notice like fractures are not going to do anything for you. But if yeah. you're doing small Ruby libraries or you're trying to, for some reason, as I do, implement a, a, a DNS server, then that might actually give you some, some speed up potentials. But it's really, yeah, so it's really one of those non, non-Rails developer features. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I could see this showing up in Puma one way or the other, right? Yeah. But yeah. at a lower level than I'm operating, which is writing Rails. And so at the end of the day, you know, my Rails or Rhoda or Sinatra or Rack, it's going to sit on top of Puma and I will never know that it's doing this stuff. Yeah. More importantly, it, it just won't matter to you for yeah. the most part as a as anyone that's running web servers, right? Because 99% of your wait time has nothing to do with Ruby ever. So yes, occasionally if maybe you're like crunching a CSV or something, sure. But like, that's why we have things like Sidekick and things we're like, ah, that's taking too long. Maybe just chunk it off to an asynchronous processor, right? Yeah, for the most part, we ignore it. But yeah, if you're you're running pure Ruby or if you're doing uh, some sort of project where you specifically have a special need, Absolutely, you're going to care crap ton about this. Yep. Yeah. So, also, also, what is the like the Ruby benchmarking tool? Is it the what Upcarrot or like that Nest emulator? Yeah, I think that was one of the ones that we talked about. I think there, yeah. there were like two, and I believe Upcarrot was one of them. But yeah, I mean, it's compl- right. It has a completely different like use footprint than Rails does, for example. Yeah. So, and so Rails developers not going to care so much. Yeah, but I, I still think we're going to see some of this creep in in the areas where it does matter for use cases that kind of sit one or two levels up from from Rails itself, right? Absolutely. I think library authors are going to care about this, right? Like it, for, it, for two reasons. One, because library authors, library authors are going to feel some amount maybe a little, maybe a lot or whatever, but some amount of pressure to to look at this and see if this is a thing they need for their own project. And some of them will see it as being useful. The like people that the closer you get to the metal, right? Like the mm-hmm. more you're going to care about things like performance. So there are absolute people, even in the Rails community, that do care about this. But for the most part, I guess all I'm arguing is the person that's at the top of the stack that really isn't digging into the stack. It's not important to them. They're just going to install Puma, or when Falcon gets good, they're just going to be like, "Sweet, I'm switching to Falcon." Oh, it uses Raptors or Fibers actually in Falcon's case, but like that—that's all they're going to care about. Like. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, the so, use case is just is just completely different, and that's yeah, that's just part of it. It's a programming language. It's not for like every aspect. Is not for for every project. 
Oh. <laughs> so, All right. oh, go ahead. I, I was going to say the thing that I was trying to get at earlier that I remembered, it took me a few minutes to find it, but I found Mike Perham's article from way back in the day on timeout or whatever and why the timeout library in Ruby causes a whole bunch of problems, right? And if you remember, like way back in the day, like, uh, I don't know, timeout was the underpinnings of like a bunch of libraries and then everybody migrated off of it within a reasonably short span of time, right? And and the truth is that it didn't affect like everyone, but if you were affected, you were like blocked by it. So then you cared. But yeah, yeah threading things underneath when they're a problem, they really hurt. But if you don't notice them otherwise. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about the Raptors API. Like I'm seeing in this code right here, some stuff around it's got like uh, Ractor.new, Ractor.yield, Ractor.receive, RECV. What what else is in here? Ractor.select. So so what do all, what do all those do? Like what what are we looking at here? So let's the way Ractors communicate with each other is that they have they have we can call it mailboxes. I think it might be called mailboxes in the original version. And you have kind of two ways to. Uh, to communicate with Rectors. Either Rector A can send a message to Rector B and Rector B can receive that message from Rector A, or we can be in a situation where Rector A says, I have a message, I will I will let everyone who might be interested in this message message get it. And then other people can pull this message from from, from that Rector. And in this code, I'm kind of using a bit of both because I'm both sending a I have a I have a rector called pipe that is this intermediate step that I use for for the queue that then gets things get pulled off of and I can say pipe send and then I can send an object to that pipe so I can specifically send something to that pipe then that pipe has a method we'll call rector receive because in, inside that pipe it, it just receives whatever is sent to it it doesn't care who it comes from it just wants to receive and get messages and it. And the same rector, the pipe rector also does rector yield on what it receives. So it it's, it makes this thing that says, hey, whoever wants to take this, please take it. It puts it into a queue with all the other things it yields. And then you can just kind of pull things out of that FIFO. And when we then do take from a specific rector, which is also from the pipe, we can then take from that FIFO in another rector. So it's kind of the way that we can we can push things to specific vectors. We can send it out into the ether and hope someone takes care, takes things we can receive from specific vectors and so on and so forth. Um, so, so it's kind of uh, two communication models that's available. And the last method, the the select vector select is kind of a um, it's it's kind of like if you're having threats and you want to to make sure that all your threats are uh, exiting at the same time, you call threat dot I can't remember the method name, but there's a there's a basically a way that says wait until this thread uh, stops executing, and then you continue, and then you can call that on all your threads. So you can kind of make sure that you don't run past a certain point until all your threads are done executing with their things. So it's the the select here is mostly just to figure out if anything everything broke. If anything broke, then just end the loop. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. And then the message is just how do I put it? So you're calling Ractor.new and you give it essentially a block and that block is what executes. So you have the the pipe and the server socket 
Yeah. So the pipe is effectively the the message queue that the reactor executes against. But yeah, but the pipe is actually a reactor itself. Oh, okay. So so the pipe in itself is also a reactor or is reference to that reactor that we can then call methods on. So we can call we can oh, take okay. from that reactor uh, the server socket here is the GPP socket. Okay. Yeah, so so we're kind of we're kind of putting a reference to one reactor inside another reactor so we can do things with it. Interesting. I yeah, want to play with this. <laughs> yeah, it's it is kind of see, it is kind of funny. And I also like there is there is so many aspects of it, and there is a very long readme readme file, which is really nice that goes through all these specific things. You can also say that when you put things on the message queue or the, into the mailbox of another reactor, you can you can add move the, the move uh, equals true or move is true, which then makes that object not accessible from the source where you send it from. So you kind of invalidate it at your source. Which is great because then you can kind of clear that piece of memory or whatever happens underneath. I have no idea what happens underneath, but that is a thing. But I could not get that to work with this specific implementation. So yeah, but that's something that Cure does with those TCP client sockets in his blog post. Yep, this is really interesting stuff. One other thing that I'm kind of curious about is just testing, right? So I can imagine that if doing concurrency and making sure you don't run into those kinds of problems is tricky to think about testing might be equally tricky yeah i think so in this specific situation i think i'm lucky because i only have communication one way with the rectors so i i I cannot run into deadlocks where the rectors are waiting for each other but there is definitely a lot of pitfalls and i'm honestly not really sure i haven't tried running any testing framework with rectors so I, i i i don't really know how they behave when you put them into our spec or mini test or something like that. Right. I'm assuming that if you're just waiting, like it will just run like normal code and you will have some answer back and you will test it and you will have yay or nay on your test. But I, I have not tested that specifically. So so that that would also be interesting to kind of stick my fingers into. Yeah, it it does occur to me now that I'm thinking about it though, that if you're effectively doing you handed a block and then you do a loop do Right, which just executes until you kill the reactor. Uh-huh. But you could at that point make calls to a module or a class or something like that that you can thoroughly test, right? Mm-hmm. And so then the behavior is when I get you know, any of these kinds of messages, do I do the right thing? And am I sending the right kinds of messages back out? Yeah. So so mostly what I'm wondering is if you can if if something like RSpec will accept that the message it gets is not happening in the main rector but in another rector, yeah, that's that that's a, yeah. I have no idea. I don't know. Hey, folks! If you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. I have suspicions that that <laughs> you're going to have to do one of two things. And I'm thinking back, right? So it's all like I did a bunch of RSpec feature tests, right? Using Copybearer and things like that, right? And Copybearer is running in a different thread. And when you're first dinking around with it, you're just like, huh, that's really weird. I'm like trying to do a binding.pry over here. Why can't I get into this context? <laughs> and then, you know, you're just trying to figure out all this stuff and you like finally discover that like your copybearer thread is a separate thread, right? From your actual test thread. And 
Yeah, it, just thinking about that experience makes me wonder if like this is actually going to be difficult uh, and if we'll have to build tooling around it. Is I feel like you could do one of two things, right? Like you could wrap the whole thing and be like, okay, so if I have a, a method with some threading reactors going on in it, right? Hey, did I get the result at the end, right? So then you're completely outside of the scope of the reactors or you're going to have to like really like dig in. Yeah. And I'm just not really sure. I don't know that our spec at this time, it, not to my knowledge, right? Is built to like, to deal with that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe if I did all of my, maybe if I did allow any instance of, you know, the thing that we don't want to do a bunch of, right? At the very beginning of my program. And then when I have Raptors, maybe they're copying the memory space. And so they already have that setting in them. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. I, again, if, if some solution, like the solution that exists for threading, I would assume that you could kind of, at least to some extent, borrow or lean upon those, but at the same time, you don't have the GVL. So how would that affect that? And would there be, yeah, I, having this weird like middle layer between in like in non-Ruby 3 would be the middle layer between threats and processes, like that whole, like what is shared, what is not, what, what is blocking, what is, yeah. But there are some other questions though. Yeah. Yep. Well, the other thing is, is that and you point this out in your article too, that it's an experimental feature, right? Yeah. So it's, they, they haven't committed to the API. They haven't committed to the implementation. They, they put it out there so people could use it. And then, they, and then what they're hoping is that we'll come back and say, this part of it is awesome. And this part of it could use a little tweak mm-hmm. it here. Change this. The, beha- the behavior or the performance here isn't where we want it. And so because of that, I could also see that, yeah, the R specs or mini tests or whatever out there may not be prepared to handle it just because it's new and experimental. Yeah, I even saw, I, I, I think it was maybe the author of Rectures answer. There was a guy playing around with it on the Ruby subreddit and mm-hmm. he asked some questions. And I, I'm guessing it was the author who was like, hey, thank you for trying this feature out. I've been thinking about it like this, or I'm doing like this, or you cannot do this. And he, came with some direct feedback. So so it really feels like it's a new thing and they also or he will also want people to to experiment and kind of come up with with what's happening with with vectors. So yeah, I think there's there's still a lot to to figure out. Right. I mean we also have fibers too, right? Like there are a few things that are coming out of Ruby three that are like clearly aimed at bringing Ruby into the the threading space in a in a more awesome manner i guess right so i don't i don't know if they're necessarily competing but but we have other sort of options yeah I've, I've, as least as, as i understand fibers run within the same thread the same everything in ruby and then just kind of does micro threading as you would see in yeah other other languages yeah it, mm-hmm. the interesting thing about fibers right is it's sort of like you know what i don't I'm busy, right? Or I'm blocked right now, whatever. So I'm just going to like hand back my time, right? And so like fibers are sort of like, I don't know, just a very opt-in way, right? Of of sort of giving back that time. So they're they're interesting in their own respect. Yeah. But yeah, I the think point they have is, a value. yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because as you said, there are, there there is this push to get more concurrency within Ruby so that we can change the performance characteristics of our applications. And that's definitely an interesting 
development here because I've actually talked to people that have explored other languages and other options because they have some use case that that needs it, right? I've also talked to some people who have explored other languages because they want concurrency. And when you try and pin down why they want concurrency, it's it, they tell you performance, but they can't actually tell you real numbers. And so while we're talking about all this stuff and it's cool features, yeah, I, I just want to reiterate, you may not need this, right? But at the same time, I mean, it can't hurt you to understand it and understand that it's there. Now, all that said, you you have been writing uh, IP version six stuff with reactors, and I'm curious, like, what 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 other use cases can you kind of see this going toward, and how does that use case differ from this one as far as the use of reactors? Sure. So yeah, I'm 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 a I'm a networking guy. Uh, also, by education, I'm both doing I'm both on network and software and a lot of different stuff, and I. I, I am trying to make people understand that IPv6 is important and they should care about IPv6 and that platforms like Roku not supporting IPv6 is a bad thing and you should raise your raise, raise your fingers at them and say, hey, you need to support IPv6. But that's a whole other thing. I've written articles about that if people want to go read them. So that's not for people with that right now. But in terms of use cases, I think, especially here when we're looking at, at IO and we're looking at and these things where we act, might actually have really good solutions in just standard Ruby threads. Me doing a DNS server that is with, with rectors and supporting IPv4 and IPv6, I don't think that's really the biggest, most impressive use case of using rectors. Because yes, we will definitely get some performance benefits of doing rectors, mm-hmm. especially if, if I need to process a DNS request, I need to do a ton of processing if maybe... I send an encrypted payload and I need to decrypt that inside my Ruby program with pure Ruby. Like, yes, that will be immensely great to have rectors, but in, in reality, I will either just send a request to somewhere else and wait for them to reply in that time where I will be waiting and someone else will be able to do something, or I will have a quick reply because I have a small database of Ruby things or, or Ruby replies that I will send off and then we're done. So I think for my use case, it's mostly for playing around and trying to understand the concurrency features. But if you are doing things with crypto, or I have friends uh, who does genome sequencing and stuff like that, they all work—they're all very busy right now with the pandemic. But all of them have been, at least in some contact with Ruby in their current or former jobs. Mm-hmm. And some of the things they said with Ruby was, "It's great; we can develop things quickly in the in the biotech world." But sometimes we were missing concurrency. Sometimes we were missing being able to do this faster or work on many parts of the gene at the same time. And in those cases, rectors could be a thing that could make sense. You split up something, you work on it truly concurrently, but you don't have the overhead of a process where you need to set up IPC to actually get messages back and forth. You kind of have a have a cheap way of doing that with uh, not that much overhead and not the RAM overhead of of maybe doing it in different ways. So that's that's going to be great maybe. And again, if you have if you have other things that are actually CPU bound, so it could be decrypting some payload or mm-hmm. again uh, loading CSV files that you could actually do maybe concurrently if you want to do some processing on your, on your CSV files. Just reading the files that's one thing, but if you want to do some processing then you could gain some 
some performance. So yeah, I think it's uh, it it's very it will be very specific to the use cases. Makes sense. I think one any, of the thing. No, oh, go ahead. go ahead. No, I was just curious if there was any any other angle that we wanted to hit. So go go I, for it. I was just going to say one of the things that I really I think that I heard you say throughout all of that, right? Every single use case there, right, is is something, right, that is that's CPU bound, but typically mm-hmm. and in some cases, right takes up more than one core on your CPU, right? Mm. And I feel like that's sort of like it, when you're entering that area, that's what we're like talking about, which is why, like at the end of the day, that's why Rails doesn't really ever have that problem because we, yeah. we don't, or, or because because the things that we do, we, we do some of the things, right? We do processing of CSVs, for example, right? That's a really common use case. But what do we do about that? We say, okay, I'm going to throw that in my sidekick processor. And then maybe on down the road, if if I need to refactor my app, you know, I have tons of CSVs that I need to process or something. Well, <laughs> I'm just going to have sidekick like call out to a Go runtime that that does my processing for me. And then mm-hmm. then the results are done, right? And so we can leverage, we've always been able to, uh, all of the things, especially in like Rails, when we're building web apps that like are just the UI for people to use, right? Then if you're looking at it that way, then all of these CPU bound tasks, they're just side projects or, or not side projects, but like they're like not, not like that core requirement, right? And so mm-hmm. you can you can say, okay, well, I'll just, I'll just carve out this little piece. I'll write a little program that handles that, call it from Sidekick, call it a day, right? And then you can, you end up staying in Rails world pretty easily. But yeah. Yeah, like, and, and I think that's also, that's definitely the power of things when you have stuff like Sidekick, where you just, you don't care about things. And if it's really important, like performance important, you write this small snippet of code that will utilize all the codes of your machine or whatever you write it in Go or you write in QRC or whatever. And then you get that thing done. But yeah, so I, I think this is just a, if we end up in that situation, maybe we will. We still want to want to take that thing and push it onto Sidekick, but instead of writing that other thing in Go or in QRC, maybe that other thing could be written in Ruby going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because we. I guess what I'm trying to get at here is we don't have like a lot of push from the. Okay, so I'm specifically talking from Rails perspective yeah. here, right? As I'm saying this statement, so we don't have a lot of push within the Rails community to solve this problem because we already have typical solutions that are good enough, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, opening up this space, solving this problem, opens up a whole new host of solutions that like, that we could have in our toolbox all of a sudden, which is super exciting. Yeah, yeah. and I think that you can, you know, suddenly you, maybe you can stick with one language instead of having to, to dip your toes in a ton of languages to get these things processed quickly, which is just, yeah, nice. Yeah, I'm just going to pile on here too because yeah, all the processing that happens in the Rails main stuff, you know, where it's actually just rendering pages and stuff like that. The way we've solved that in the past is we spin up multiple Pumas, right? Or Passenger essentially does the same thing, right? It just spins up a bunch of worker processes and then just balances stuff out to it. So this this does it different, and in a lot of ways, I think I think it'd be a lot simpler. I'm also curious. Go ahead. I think Falcon actually proved that point, right? So Falcon is like sort of a, I don't know, alpha or beta, right? New server that's like under certain scenarios and conditions, right? (laughs) If you're using libraries that already have fibers like built in, then we're faster than Puma by a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So I think think that Falcon's kind of proving that point, that threading does make that faster. Yep, absolutely. But yeah, 
So at the end of the day, I think this, uh, it'll be interesting to see if it actually turns out to be the preferred way going forward as opposed to spinning up multiple processes and balancing them that way. But yeah, I'm also curious now to see yeah, what what other options it gives us? Because you did UDP and you've done IPv6, but I'm also imagining maybe something where Action Cable or something gets a refactor, right? And we we run our web sop- sockets off of something like this instead of the way that it's put. I don't know how Action Cable is actually architected, so don't quote me on this. I may be completely off in La La Land, but some of these other concurrency approaches may for the request response that we do for web web pages, something like a web socket, it might make way more sense to have a group of threads that are all managed in the way that you did the UDP server and then just have them respond over the socket, the web socket or something like that. And so we may actually wind up getting other solutions to other problems that get solved in this way rather than the other way for the other ways that we communicate between our apps or to our apps in the first place. Yeah, and even even things sim- as simple as the application server might, like, uh, as Kira as shows, you might be able to do an application server that handles requests quite fluently in not that many lines of code with Rectors and is actually a multi-process or um, uses all your CPU code. And that's, maybe that's just because it's fun, but having that power to do that many requests per second, perhaps with so little code without relying on what could by a lot of us be seen as a like, big, scary applications server like Puma or Falcon. I have, I have no idea how big the code bases are, but there's a lot of stuff that's happening in there that is kind of magic when you're, if, if you were just doing Rails or Sinatra or whatever. And if you can do an application server in less than 100 lines of code because you have Rectors, that, that's, kind of, that's kind of fun. Maybe it's mostly fun at this point, but yeah. Well, and it's Makes also interesting to see where people take things to in the sense that once you open up a new avenue of things, and this really does open up a new avenue of things, somebody conceives of some way of using this kind of concurrency that nobody really even dreamed up while they were building it. And then all of a sudden we have Ruby on trails, right? And it's it's working in a completely different way and providing us with a more elegant solution to doing whatever it is we're doing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's always just about giving people tools and then see what, what comes up. I think the Ruby yep. community is one of the fun places for that. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Anything else that we should uh, discuss here with Rectors or with your projects, Klaus? Uh, maybe just emphasize, go play with Rectors. And, and maybe also, I know that I've written a blog post that you, I'm sure you'll link, but also go read Kier's blog post that I'm also linking in my blog post. It's it's really good. He goes into a lot of the details about Rectors. It, it can make concurrency less scary, maybe, for a lot of people. Yeah, I think I think that's a, that's an important thing. And and also, as I said before, if if you don't know what IPv6 is, I also have blog posts about that. That's really mm-hmm. important for a lot of you, and possibly also for reasons you don't know. So uh, so also uh, take a look at that. It could improve a lot of things for your business side of things. Gotcha. All right. Well, before we go to the next segment, new picks. Do you want to let people know where they can find your stuff? I mean, you've got this blog, but also maybe GitHub. I also see people share like Twitter or something. That's kind yeah. of a primary place to go. Yeah, so I have a I have a blog and website that's linked from cmol.me. 
So, so that's where I kind of link everything from. So I also, it's also CMOL on GitHub, or I have a Twitter that is heavily underused. That is L-E-N-S-B-O-E-L, which is my last name. So I think that's the main places to, to catch me. And yeah, if you have questions or you, you think I'm wrong about the way I'm doing something, or you want to ask me something, just fire it up. I'm open to everything. I, I have a lot to learn still. So yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's go ahead and let's jump into the picks. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. John, do you want to go first? I can absolutely go first. So I actually have a couple of picks. One is just, so I have a Pixel 2, which just turned three years old this past week, and and she's still going really good. So uh, <laughs> I'm not recommending you go out and buy one, but I but I am saying that like I mean what we're we're working on. I think Pixel Five is out, right? If I recall correctly. Yeah. yeah. I, think so. I, I was just thinking about this past week, and I was like, all right, so this is this is legit. Like I was trying to find something non Apple because I did not whatever. I, I was like leaving the Apple world, right? But I wanted something that was a good experience. Like I did have a mostly positive experience with Apple. I wanted something that was really good. And I've been very pleased. I was very, I love my Nexus 6P. That was also a very long lasting phone for me. And then I ended up buying this one as my next phone or whatever. And, and my goal was to have a phone that lasted longer than two years. And so far, like we're, we've blown past it. So very pleased with that. I wanted to get more phone for my money. I was, I, that's, that was my goal. So very happy with it. Do you still get security updates for it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think that we're getting close to end of life, but I've been getting security updates every month. So okay. yeah, I'm also on the Pixel. So yeah, it's fair. I think it, the Pixel 1 might be done, but yeah. <laughs> and I think Pixel 2 may be coming to the end. I definitely, like I said, don't don't just go buy a Pixel 2 right now. I don't I don't know how awesome that would be. But overall, the line has been really good. So anyway, that's so I'm recommending the Pixel line, actually, based on longevity. That's that's why I'm recommending it. So, And then additionally, the other thing that I wanted to plug, the, the actual thing that I brought to the table that was like more important to me is I tried out these Oreo dark chocolate Oreos or whatever that they just came out recently. And they were actually pretty reasonably good. And, and by pretty reasonably good, I mean like I buy like a thing of Oreos every few months, you know. And I'm now buying these. I'm just saying. They're better. That's my second pick. All right. I'm going to throw out a couple of picks too. Now, I've been part of this podcast that just turned uh, 10 years old yesterday called Ruby Rogues. You might have heard of it. And yeah, we, we recorded episode one literally 10 years ago yesterday. 
as a president. Today is the sixth. Yeah, yesterday. So anyway, uh, pretty, pretty awesome. Pretty exciting. Uh, we are going to be doing an episode 500. And yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm pretty excited about it. So it's been kind of this interesting journey. I'm also thinking about... So I've been podcasting for almost 13 years. And I've been kind of thinking about doing kind of a retrospective. There are some things that I've really screwed up <laughs> over the last 13 years. And there are things that I have, you know, that I've really enjoyed and things that I feel like we did right. And so it, it'd be interesting. It's also been interesting if you've been a listener for a long time. I reached out to pretty much every panelist that I could remember had been on the show. And I got a couple of yeses. I got a couple of... I think I think the most unkind one was... It was real short. It was kindly F off to the sun. So I've, I've had rocky relationships with some of these folks. But anyway, it like I said, I've, I've really screwed some stuff up. But at the end of the day, it's 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 been this journey, and it's it's been an amazing and and awesome journey. And I, when I talk to people about things over the course of the of Ruby Rogues, we've really helped some people, and and that's really what it comes down to. That's really what it matters. So I've kind of been toying with the idea of writing out kind of the journey. I don't know if what that looks like. I don't know if it looks like kind of a kind of a private or paid uh, audio series. I don't know if it's a book. I don't know if it's a series of blog posts. There's a lot there, but this has been fun. So keep an eye out for episode 500. And I mean, this is going to be episode 496, something like that. So anyway, just putting that out there. But besides that, besides me going, this was this has been awesome, you know. And and the other thing is, is I, I don't know very many other podcasters that have a 10 year old show. So and we're about to have two of them because in January, JavaScript Jabber ticks over. So other picks that I have, I had something else and I can't think of what it was. I guess I'm going to pick this book that I have sitting on my desk. And it's for the the folks that are more entrepreneur focused. But if you're hiring people or running a team or anything like that, this this will be helpful to you. The book is called Who Not How. All right. And we're all engineers, right? And so we all get caught up on the how, right? How do I get this? How do I solve this problem? You know, how do I just sit down and crank out the solution to this? And we're usually capable enough, if it's a technical problem, to solve the problem, right? We, we can find the solution to it. But what I'm finding is, uh, as an entrepreneur, is that a lot of times, yeah, I can do it myself. But what I need to do is I need to find somebody else to do it, even if they're not going to do it the same way, at the same level, things like that. And so it's, it's interesting just to kind of consider, okay, who, who can I get to do this? Who should I have involved? Who should be solving this or fixing this or doing this or whatever, right? And it's it's not always feasible, right? Sometimes you have to do it, even though time-wise and efficiency-wise, it would be better to have someone else do it. But anyway, I'm, I'm really enjoying that. And then one last pick, we're kind of coming up on tax day here in the US because they pushed it back a month. Thanks, COVID. And so I've been trying to frantically get my books done from last year so that I can get my taxes filed. And I've been using Xero. Uh, it's X-E-R-O. Dot com and boy it is so much easier to use than fresh books or not fresh books uh, quickbooks I'll just tell you it's it's awesome so I'm gonna I'm gonna pick that as well 
And finally, the last pick I have, and I think I talked about this last time, is I've started just checking in on people. I mean, some of it started with, hey, you know, we're doing episode 500. Are you interested in being a part of it? And the reality is, is that adding new people to the list and then kind of setting the schedule, do I want to follow up with these people weekly, monthly, or quarterly? And quarterly might be a little less often than quarterly, just because realistically, there are a lot of people that I would like to follow up with. And I don't have time to follow up with everyone. But that said, just setting up a system. If there's something that you feel like you need to be doing on a regular basis, set up a system, right? Set up a system and make it happen. So anyway, those are my picks. Klaus, do you have some picks? I think I thought about it. I, I think the the main thing that I want to want to plug is for people to 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 help new people get into the community. So the way mm-hmm. I got into the community was like as a twenty something early twenties year student, only have worked with PHP, and then a guy at my work introduced me to Ruby and took me to a Copenhagen RB and all that stuff. And right now, there's not a lot of places you can go and do stuff like that. But don't be afraid to to pull in new people and young people. We definitely need more people who's interested in Ruby and come up with new fun ideas. And it's a good experience for also learning about things in terms of how do you explain code? How do you grow in those areas? So if you haven't if you haven't tried helping someone else in Ruby or whatever language you're you're working with on your day-to-day basis, maybe there's an intern at your job that needs to do something with programming and just like spend an hour here or there introducing them to stuff. It's going to mean the world to them and it's not going to take a lot from you. So I think that's, I think that would be my thing. All right. Good deal. Well, I'm going to encourage people to go check out your blog and connect with you online. And let's go ahead and wrap up right here. Thanks for coming. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was good. It was really nice to talk to the, talk about some records with some people. Oh yeah. Absolutely. All right, folks. Till next time, Max out. Take care. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.